This is the Political Economy Podcast. Complexity in an age of climate catastrophe, social injustice, and post-democracy. Hi, this is Zoltan Pogacar, and today we are discussing Keynes, The Return of the Master, by Robert Skidelsky book published by Ellen Lane Publishers in 2009. Robert Skidelsky is a British economist and the leading biographer of John Maynard Keynes. In this book, he investigates the surprising but evident comeback of Keynes and his theory after the 2008 financial crisis, as well as his relevance for the post-crisis world. Keynesianism was the dominant school of economic thought from around 1936 until 1973. 1936 is often chosen as the starting point because it was in that year that Keynes published his most famous book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money, usually just referred to as The General Theory. It was a response to the Great Depression and introduced a completely new way of doing economics. 1973 is usually chosen as the end point of the Keynesian age and the starting point of the successive era, neoliberalism, for a number of reasons. The early 70s saw the collapse of the gold standard, the first oil shock, as well as the military coup of General Augusto Pinochet in Chile, with a pungently market-oriented neoliberal economic agenda endorsed by both Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. Pinochet was later followed by Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Ronald Reagan in the US, as well as a number of neoliberal leaders who were nominally on the left, such as François Mitterrand, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton and Gerhard Schröder. Between 1936 and 1973, however, Keynesianism reigned supreme. It was so dominant that even the neoliberals acknowledged they were in a tiny minority when they first came together to form their famous Mont Pelerin Society in 1947. Keynesianism was famously put into practice by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the USA. We learned from Skidelsky that Keynes was not happy with the New Deal. He thought it too limited in volume. Keynesian policies were also embraced by the Swedish Social Democratic Party in the 1930s, through which they avoided a far-right surge and takeover, in contrast to Germany, Italy and elsewhere. Listen to episode 6 of this podcast for more on this. After World War II, in the era of the welfare state, it became widespread all over the Western world to practice Keynesian counter-cyclical demand management, with enormous success. Skidelsky refers here to well-known data, which suggests that not only was Keynesianism able to fend off recessions like the Great Depression, but with the benefit of hindsight, we can now determine that it was also more successful in general than the neoliberal era that came after it. It guaranteed higher employment, 
effectively full employment. It ensured higher growth and significantly lower inequalities. And all of this without relying on massively increasing levels of public and private debt, the latter of which ended up causing the 2008 global financial crisis. Why did Keynesianism end in the 70s then, if it had been so successful? There were a number of reasons, most of which Skidelsky outlines in detail. In terms of debates in the economic profession, it was brought to its knees by the emergence of something called stagflation, a word coined from stagnation and inflation, both of which appeared at the same time in the 70s. According to Keynesian theory, this was supposed to be an impossibility. The state could either fight off stagnation by boosting demand at the risk of inflation, or defeat inflation at the risk of slowing down the economy, but could never generate stagnation and inflation at the same time. The fact that they did appear provided ammunition for Milton Friedman, who championed the crusade against Keynesianism. By the 1970s, the neoliberal political machinery had installed itself in the form of think tanks and university chairs financed by big business, as well as media owned by oligarchs. They were eager to push Friedman's message allowing him to successfully discredit the Keynesian school. The victory was so complete that for a number of decades, Keynesian ideas became marginalized and even ridiculed in the economic profession. Skidelsky admits that the Keynesians had been too comfortable and were too slow to offer an alternative explanation of stagflation. It was not even a difficult puzzle in reality. Inflation was imported. It arose because of the first and second oil shocks, which had originated in wars in the Middle East. The Arabs simply decided to raise the price of oil as a weapon against the West, who they saw as protectors of Israel. Friedman claimed that the state is unable to do good by fiscal expansion, spending from the budget to stimulate the economy. People will anticipate that more money in the economy will cause inflation, and they will try to adjust to this expectation by demanding higher wages. As a self-fulfilling prophecy, this leads to a price-wage spiral. The Keynesian response to such a spiral in Europe consisted of wage agreements with the trade unions, which were effective for decades in suppressing inflation whenever it surfaced. However, in Nixon's and Reagan's America, this was not an option. Reagan hated trade unions and fought them hard, with the single exception of the Solidarity Trade Union in Poland, of course. His infamous actions against the striking air traffic controllers are remembered to this day. Economics without Keynes. 
Skidelsky then goes on to detail the fate of the economic profession after the fall of Keynesianism. They accepted a number of irrational premises, which became the basis of mainstream economics from the 80s onwards. This included rational expectations, the idea that people are rational enough to possess miraculous foresight, the implication that the state cannot help the economy as people will anticipate inflation. The second belief was real business cycle theory, the idea that the economy always tends towards equilibrium by itself. If there is a crisis, and obviously in real life there are crises, hence the term real business cycle, it is caused by an external shock. These can be natural phenomena, such as hurricanes and droughts, but also regulation, spending by politicians or the central banks. The implication again, that the state is harmful, the economy best be left alone. The third belief was the efficient markets hypothesis, which stated that markets are efficient at pricing in economic facts. The implication that economic phenomena can be treated as risks and can be modeled using statistical methods. This completely eliminates Keynes's idea of uncertainty, which he contrasted with risk. Uncertainty is unknowable. Risk is calculable. Most of what takes place in the economy is actually uncertain. Treating it as risk furnished economists and financial managers with such hubris that they built colossal financial pyramid schemes based on these ideas, which then exploded in 2008. The last idea was public choice theory, a school that focuses on how politicians follow their own interests rather than that of the community. This was then used to counter previous ideas of market failure with the concept of state failure. The implication again, the state is bad, regulation is bad. The two schools that accepted these hypotheses were the New Classicals and the New Keynesians. The New Classicals, often called freshwater economists because they work in places like Chicago, were people like Robert Lucas, Eugene Farmer, or Robert Barrow. They accepted stricter versions of these hypotheses, literally believing them to be the way people and markets behaved. The other school called itself the New Keynesians and are often dubbed saltwater economists. They consist of people like Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz. They also accepted these premises, but weaker versions of them, meaning that in the short run, because of sticky wages and prices, the economy does not adjust towards equilibrium the way freshwater economists believe. The saltwater school might call itself New Keynesian, but Skidelsky insists that what they, be, what they profess is not real Keynesianism. He quotes the famous Cambridge economist Joanne Robinson, an actual student and colleague of Keynes, who had called this 
bastardized Keynesianism. Skidelsky outlines in the book the details of why this is so, divergences such as completely ignoring uncertainty and accepting the above-mentioned irrational neoclassical beliefs. Just to make the terminology completely confusing, the true Keynesian heritage is carried on by a school called post-Keynesian economics, as opposed to the neo-Keynesianism of Krugman and Stiglitz. Not surprisingly, an economic structure built upon such misguided foundations as neoclassical and neo-Keynesian economics led to immense bubbles and the collapse of 2008. Suddenly, to save the economy from global collapse, Keynesian demand management had to be brought back. It has been with us ever since. From Obama's gigantic fiscal stimulus, to the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, through quantitative easing in both America and in Europe, to Abenomics in Japan, and massive counter-cyclical demand managed by, by the Communist Party of China, everyone is doing demand management nowadays. It is as if Keynes had never been banished from the economic mainstream. As Skidelsky puts it, the master is back. You have been listening to the Political Economy Podcast. For debates and feedback, find us on Facebook. If you'd like to donate to the show, please find us on Patreon. See you next time.